and that verse is verse 28, where we're told by Paul, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. The Bible often speaks about awards and prizes and crowns. And these, these of course, are illustrations, but no doubt we're familiar uh, with many of these Bible references. For example, in Hebrews chapter 12, um, the author of that letter exhorts people to continue in the faith and the way that he uses, the way he exhorts them is by reminding them of a race. And he says to them that running the race we are to lay aside every weight. It would look very funny to see somebody running a race carrying something heavy. We're to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So there's a reminder that the Christian life is like a race. But that's not the only time the illustration is used. For example, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13, he refers quite literally to a race. For he says, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Nevertheless, I do not consider that, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That's what an athlete does, isn't it? He or she strains to what lies ahead. And he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul there, she's an illustration that when the athlete finished the race, he was given a call to come up. He's given a call to come up onto a platform and there on the platform to receive his wreath that he got for running in the race. So the picture of a race is quite a common one. And recently, when I was, when we were on holiday, I watched some athletes athletics on the television. And if, if you ask me, that's the easiest way to participate in athletics. But anyway, I was watching it and you get a lot of lessons for the Christian life just by watching a race. So I want us today to think about the Christian race. And I want to think about the commencement of it, and the continuation of it, and the completion of it. 
and see what lessons we can learn about it. The race that I was particularly impressed with, especially as I was quite comfortable watching it, uh, was a 10,000 meters one. And it was looked at the athletes as they started at the race. And if you had said to me, which one of them is going to win it? I wouldn't have been able to tell you. And the, the reason why I wouldn't have been able to tell you was because all of them looked as if they had made the right preparation. All of them looked as if they could run the race. And it turned out that while there was only one winner, they all did finish it. So they had made the right preparations to start the race. And that leads us to think, doesn't it, of what, what preparations do we have to make to run the race? And I just want to mention two or three. And strangely enough, we might say the first preparation to make is to realize that we're not fit to run the race. And the reason why we are not fit to run it is because of our sins. Now, sometimes when we use the word sins, we automatically think of something enormous. But normally when the Bible talks of sins, it's not thinking of things that we regard as enormous. Although it is describing things that God regards as enormous. But normally it's describing things that we regard as sometimes as quite trivial or not worth bothering about. And you know what the worst sin that we have and the one that we've got to deal with before we run in the Christian race is the sin that we don't want to run in it. And that's the basic problem, isn't it? I mean, we can be told about the Christian race and the necessity of making preparation to start, and also what's required to run it, and of the great reward at the end of it, and the reason why we haven't paid attention to that basically is that we don't want to take part in it. And I was like that for years. If someone has said to me, tell us what the Bible says, I could have told them. What's the message of the Bible? I would have been able to say to anyone who asked me, just because I was brought up in a church, but I could still have said to people who asked me, what's the Bible about? And I could probably have said it as well as anybody else. But the basic problem was I didn't, for years, I didn't want to start. The race didn't interest me in the slightest. And I think some of us can be like that as well, can't we? If we if some of us have not yet started the race. And we have to, if that's the case, we have to ask ourselves, why have we not started it? And the answer is quite basic, really. There may be lots of secondary reasons, but the main reason is we have not 
We don't want it. So therefore we have not asked. And we have to deal with that one. Or we should say God has to deal with that one. And how does God deal with it? I think that is an interesting question. How does God deal with our lack of interest? Well, he could, in a sense, just keep shouting at us, saying, you've got no interest. But that might not do any benefit, would it? I mean, if if somebody keeps going on and on about why we're not doing something, that doesn't, in the end, really produce any benefit, does it? We have to give motivation, information, as to why someone should change their mind. And in the real sense, that's what God does. What does a person who doesn't want to run the Christian race need to hear? That individual needs to hear about Jesus. That's that's the person they need to hear about. And they have to be told about who he is and what he did, what he was like, where he is now, and all these details about him. I'm quite sure that most of us here, if not all of us, know everything already about Jesus. But you know, when we get information about Jesus, there's only one of two consequences. One consequence is that we find him attractive. And the other consequence is that we don't. And if we are going to take part in the Christian race, we have to find him attractive. And that he is far more alluring, we might say, than anything else that we can come across in life. We need, as somebody has put it once, we need the power of our new affection. And we need to have something bigger that fills our vision. And the biggest thing that can fill our vision, of course, is Jesus himself. And when we discover that part of his attractions are his abilities, that he can help us, he can do things for us that are incredible, then we are led to trust in him. And that's how God does it. (laughs) The way for people to be converted is not to continue highlighting their defects. All we're doing when we do that is telling them what's wrong with them. We have to tell them what the remedy is. And the remedy is Jesus himself. And our aim must be to get people to think about Jesus. To think about his life, his perfect life, which he lived out on behalf of us, and also his activity on the cross. Because he wasn't a victim on the cross. He went to the cross to perform something. And on the cross he paid the penalty for our sins. And that's wonderful. One day, I realized that. Every Christian realizes that. That Jesus just meets our needs perfectly. And he becomes so attractive to to us that all we can do 
is trust him. And of course, that trusting in him might be a bit tentative at first. But there's nothing wrong with tentative faith. I mean, God does say to us, try me. See if I can fulfill what my promises are. And when we have faith in Jesus, we discover no matter how tentative or, or careful our faith might be, be initially, we just find that when we trust in him, he lives up to everything that's said about him. And we're ready, or almost ready, to start the race. Because we've heard about Jesus, and we want to follow Jesus. That's what the Christian race is about. <clears throat> we run it looking to Jesus. But you know, there's something that also happens at the same time. And it happens to everyone that starts the Christian race. And that is, they know what to do with their defects. They know what to do with the things that stop them running the race. And we might say, well, what's required there is just stop doing them. And that's part of the answer. But, you know, we're not just creatures with an outward life. We are also creatures with an inward heart, an inward mind that responds to things. And we have to respond to things emotionally, as well as rationally. And it's easy for us rationally to work out we've done something wrong. But we've also got to respond to that emotionally. And emotionally in our hearts. And as we think about the actions or the attitudes, whatever it was, that was stopping us running the Christian race, we begin to regret the sins that we committed. And we repent over them. And we say to God, we're sorry that we did them. And this combination of trust in Jesus and sorrow for our sins is the only preparation for starting the Christian race. Can't start it any other way. Can't start it without repentance and we can't start it without faith. But the minute we have faith and repentance, and they do happen together, they are twins. And while repentance by itself doesn't save us, true repentance never occurs by itself. True repentance is always there by faith. As the Bible puts it, they shall look on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn. I mean, it's good to run the Christian race and we can run it happily trusting in Jesus but at the same time we regret our sinfulness that's the commencement of the race and as I was watching this race on the TV I saw all these uh, athletes talking to each other and of course I had no idea what they were saying to each other but of course they could all have been saying to each other what's it like to become second shortly but the <coughs> As I looked at them having their little discussion with uh, one another, I just thought, what should we be thinking about as, at the start of the Christian race? And 
just telling their own story, isn't it? What better thing to say to one another? How did we start the race? What brought us into it? And just telling us how Jesus became attractive to us and how we adhere to him by faith and how we were sorry for our sins. These are good things to speak about because they tell the other runners. But there's one thing about this Christian race, it's not a competition. We're not there to beat the other runners. We want everybody else to finish the race. And the only way to, or one way to do that, I should say, is what we say to one another. And we just tell each other how we started. It's important to do that. And just say, yeah, Jesus one day became the most important person in the world. And I just trusted in him. And I'm so glad I did. So that's the commencement of the race. And I suppose the challenge does come to us, doesn't it? Have we started it? There's no point knowing where the starting line is. We have to go to the starting line and be ready to start the Christian race. So that leads us, secondly, to think about the continuation of the race. As I was looking at this group of athletes, well, they, well, they were different ages, at least to me they looked. Some looked in their early 30s and some were in their, I suppose, in their early 20s. But they were there of different ages and there were different ethnic backgrounds as well. There was people from different races in this race. And there's one thing that marked all of them. You know what it was? They all knew how long the race was. They knew they'd have to run for 10,000 meters to get to the end of it. And it's good for us to think of the Christian race in these kind of ways as well. For example, how long is the Christian race? I mean, we know we can talk about the start and we can talk about the end. But how long is the Christian race? For all the runners in that race that I was watching, it was the same distance, 10,000 meters. But that's not the same as the Christian race. Nobody runs the exact same distance. But from one point of view, they probably they do, actually. And that is, they run it for the rest of their lives. But for some of them, it might be 10 years. For some, it might be 50 years. Some of them might be 70 years. But they have to run it for the rest of their lives. And as you look ahead, we might say, well, that's, that sounds pretty tough. But why should it be? I mean, if you're at that particular point today, and just, just say you happen to be 50, and you're looking ahead and say, oh, well, do I have to run for 30 years doing this? Well, all I would say to that is, what have you been using your energy for in the previous 50 years? I mean, we, don't, we, we all spend our energies doing something. But the Christian race calls us to do, to run for Jesus for the rest of our lives, however long that happens to be. From conversion to whenever God calls us home. And we run all the way. And 
I suppose connected to that as well, to this race, is how many are running it? There was about 20 people in the race that I ran. Sorry that I watched, sorry. But um, there was 20 people there that I think there was about 20. But how many are running the race today? All over the world, how many are running it? Actually, quite bizarrely, some of you running it was you're sitting there in your seats. But the, there's millions and millions of runners in the race today all over the world. And they're all, as I kind of hinted earlier, the race I watched, there's different ethnic backgrounds in it. And from all over the world today, Christians of all nationalities are, are running this race. It's incredible when you think about it. Just to try and get your minds around it. So, I mean, sometimes we see pictures of the, these marathons that take place in cities. And there's just this huge combination of different colors uh, taking part. And that's what the Christian church is like, isn't it? People from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. And today they're running the Christian race. And it's good. I suspect it's actually the biggest race in the world. I mean, everybody else has got other races that they're involved in, running for this and running for that. But the biggest race in the world is the Christian race, and they're all running to get to heaven, millions and millions and millions of them. But I suppose the question that does come to us is, what help do they get? As I was watching this race on the TV, uh, there was this table beside the track, and every so often the, the runners, if they wish, could just stretch out their hand and grab a glass of water. And the reason why the water was there was because the heat was incredible. It was very, very hot where the, where the race was taking place. And they were given this help to keep them going. And, you know, in the Christian race, we get help. And I suppose we ask ourselves, what help do we get? What help do we get in the Christian race? And the answer to that, we know the answer to that question. The answer to that question is we get the help of divine power by the Holy Spirit who's in our hearts. He gives us the energy to keep going. Now, I think some people imagine that whenever the Holy Spirit turns up, that all it's seen is dynamite. Some kind of explosion that um, overwhelms anybody who happens to be around. And no doubt that happens now and again, but I think divine power is far more basic. It just gives you enough strength to take the next step. It gives you perseverance. So you just keep on going. And I mean, that's encouraging, isn't it? What's God going to give me right now? Enough to take the next step. And after I've done that, what's he going to give me? Enough to take the next step. I mean, I may, if, I, if I had been literally running in this race, I may have said to myself, well, that's five laps done. How many, many more have I got to do? But 
You can't run the Christian life that way. We've no idea how many laps are in our race. All, all we know is that we need strength for the next step. And the amazing thing is the Holy Spirit just gives it. And it just comes. I mean, if you've been a Christian for a while, just ask yourself, how many steps have you taken in your Christian race? And who gave you the power to take all of them? Only God did. The Holy Spirit did. And it's incredible, isn't it? And there was the same amount of power given for every step. We might think that on some occasions we needed more power than at other times. But, I mean, if you've got the strength of God, you've got the strength of God. I mean, it's, it's just, um, that's just life, you know. And as we, as we run this Christian race step by step, and we're just getting closer and closer to the end of the journey. And that's one of the encouragements that we're given. But also connected to that, is divine promises. And, I mean, the people I saw in the race, on the TV, they all looked ideal runners. You know that? Every one of them looked as if at some stage they'd won a race, and they probably had. But when you come to the Christian race, who are the runners? Or what are they like, the runners? Well, the reality is that each one of them flops and fails. They do. Despite divine strength, they make wrong steps and wrong decisions. And I was thinking of Peter. I mean, Peter is one of the best runners, isn't he? one of the best runners of the Christian life. But as we look at him, sometimes the next step he takes, we say, wow, how did you get that, Peter? Like when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And out it comes straight away with great energy. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if we had seen Peter at that particular stage in his race, we would have said, wow, keep an eye on this man. He's going to do great things. And of course, he did do great things, like the day of Pentecost and so on. But there were other times in this Christian race where he did the exact opposite. And where instead of saying about Jesus that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, all he could say was, with oaths and curses. I don't even know him. That was some kind of step, wasn't it? But you know, the extraordinary thing is, for his next step, after he had said that, what happened to him? Well, he got a look from Jesus. Imagine that in the huge crowd that were gathered there in the high, priest, the high priest's um, house interrogating Jesus. They're in the middle of, middle of all that um, noise. And Peter's voice, perhaps the loudest amongst them, denying that he knows Jesus. And there in a moment, he just gets a look from Jesus. You know, and it was a look of strength. 
It was a look that gave Peter strength. Because what should Peter do now that he's denied Jesus? Well, I mean, what should Peter do now that he's denied Jesus? Well, he shouldn't sit down and say, oh, well, I shouldn't have said that. He should have repented. And what did Peter do when Jesus looked at him? He repented immediately. He went out and wept bitterly. Divine strength came to him in that moment of, we could say, worst rebellion when he was indicating he wasn't even part of the Christian race. Yet at that precise moment, this heavenly power came into his heart. And it's wonderful to think of that, isn't it? I mean, if, if you and I are, whatever we are in the Christian race, if we are saying to ourselves, well, from now on it's going to be great, it ain't. There's going to be loads of occasions where you're going to make, and I'm going to make, something that's not what should be done. But the good thing to know is that when that does happen, the one who called us into the race gives us immediate power, appropriate power. And whether it's to repent or do something else, we are given this energy to do it and to do it immediately. And that's what Peter did, wasn't it? So as we run this race, we're running it with millions of others, and every single one of them for each of their next steps is getting help from heaven. And they're getting help that they need exactly. And you and I will get that too in the continuing race. And then thirdly and lastly, there's the, the completion of the race. And Peter, sorry, and Paul, of course, talks about that here, where he says that those who ran the race in his day, they got, they did it to get a perishable wreath. And the Bible's got lots of different pictures of what people get at the end of the race, but it's usually something they can hold, like a crown or something, or a wreath. But the difference between these kind of earthly races and the completion of the heavenly race is that we don't get something to hold. We actually get a place to live. I mean, that's our reward. We're going to get the eternal world. I just want to think about that for a couple of minutes before we close. End of the race. You ever imagine it, the end of the race? What's going to happen when it's over? The Bible encourages us to think about it. It's an incentive to keep going. And one of the things that's going to happen to us, of course, as we all know, is that when that great moment comes, we're going to get a commendation at last. You know, I watched that race, and the man that ran it, man that won it, ran it very well. But I've forgotten his name. I've no idea who he was or who he is. No doubt there's lots of people that can remember his name. But having watched him run it and, and seen that, here I am a couple of weeks later, and I haven't a clue what his name is. But Jesus, he's going to say to us at the end of the race, well done. And you know, that well done will last forever. 
I mean heaven, what kind of place is heaven? Well, heaven is a place where each of the inhabitants has heard Jesus say to them, well done. And as we've been there for, if we've been there a million years, and as we look around it, every person that we see, Jesus said to them, well done. And that means far more than anything else, doesn't it? To hear him say, well done. Other people might say this or that about us, and their estimation may be far too highly exaggerated, or it might be very minimalized. But Jesus' one will be exactly accurate. And he's going to say, well done. And when he says, well done, that's to the last. Never forget it. We're going to get a commendation at last. But we're also going to be elevated to somewhere that's very high. You know, how are we described? How are those who finish the race described? And they are described in very lots of places as kings. When Jesus told his parables, there weren't many kings around. It was quite a rare thing to be a king. But when he's talking to his people, he says to all of them, even like the parable of the talents and so on, in the world to come, you're going to be elevated, you're going to reign, you're going to be exalted. Isn't that incredible? As I look out on this room, am I seeing kings? And as you look around the room, are you seeing kings? I mean, that, that is a question to ask, isn't it? When we see royalty and we see them on the TV and so on, well, there are miles, they're miles away from us, aren't they? But in the world to come, those who run the Christian race, they are going to be elevated very high. And as Jesus said, the one who had ten talents, you'll rule over ten cities, and so on. It's not literal. <laughs> You're not to sit down there and work out where or not I'm going to have ten equivalents of New York. But you're going to have some kind of promotion, elevation. And the closest thing that this world gives to it is to make you a king. That's some reward to get. And the third thing, the last thing is, we're going to get an inheritance that doesn't fade. The one thing that's guaranteed for every inheritance that anybody ever gets is that somewhere along the line, it's just going to peter out. But the heavenly inheritance is just going to last forever. There's nothing in it that decays. A new heavens, a new earth, that's the reward for running the Christian race. An incredible reward. So as we think about it, what applications we can make to ourselves, well, they're obvious, aren't they? The first one is, have we started? It really is important. Have we started the Christian race? 
doesn't matter how much you know. It's what you've done with what you know. And have you started the Christian race? Have you trusted in Jesus and taken these first steps on the Christian life? And if we're running it, how do you cope with your mistakes? Because there's nobody that runs it who doesn't make a mistake. And you may think all the runners are very good. But the Bible tells us that they're not. How do you cope with your mistakes? And the answer is, we're to look to the one who gives us all the successes at the same time. And continue the race looking to Jesus. And we should think about the completion of it. You know, the longer... Maybe it's a sign of something, but the longer you live, the more you think about the ones who have completed it. Who once ran along beside Christ, and they're now inheriting these promises. They completed their race, and they're now in the grandstand, as the writer of Hebrews says, and they're cheering us on. There's a sound coming from heaven that we can hear by faith. And it's the cry of those who have finished the race. And they're just saying to us, keep on going. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks for the Christian race, for the message that causes us to start in it, for the power that we experience as we run it and for the amazing prize that's, that's there at the end when Jesus will say well done and he'll make his people into kings and give them an inheritance that will never fade away. Lord, grant that each of us would participate in it. Bless us now as we turn to the the award giving, and we just ask you, Lord, to bless each child that gets a prize. And remember us for good, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing from Psalm 34 and sing Psalms, verses 8 to 10, two verses. Come taste and see the Lord is good, who trusts in him is blessed. O fear the Lord, you saints, with need you will not be oppressed. Verses 8 to 10. Come taste and see the Lord
Now the first book's for Ewan Hutton. The next one's for Jennifer Murray. The next one's Thomas McReal. 